I grew up in South Africa, um, obviously under apartheid. This is Andrew Feinstein. He's a successful author, activist, former politician and whistleblower. After growing up in South Africa, he moved to England to do his PhD. As I embarked on my PhD, the first ANC leaders were released and the process of transition started. And I, uh, I couldn't control myself. I just wanted to go straight back to the country. Um, and Cambridge and my PhD supervisor were incredibly um, helpful. In fact, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I was registered for my PhD at Cambridge for 14 years. So they would regularly write to me every year to find out if I'd be back at the beginning of the next term. What happened next changed his life. And then in true ANC style, I was in Bangladesh getting married. My, my wife is Bangladeshi. And literally while I was in Bangladesh in late um, 1993, the ANC included me on a list of candidates for the upcoming democratic elections. Next came an encounter with former President Nelson Mandela. I then was at the Davos, the Davos meeting of the World Economic Forum in, in Switzerland with Tokyo Sakhwala, who was giving a speech there. And I used to write all his economic and finance speeches. And Tokyo and I were called to see President Mandela, who'd arrived to give a speech. And I'll never forget, I walked into his little hotel room and he was sitting there in yellow pajamas and he had a long chat with Tokyo about various matters. And then he turned to me and he said, so, Andrew, um, would you consider moving to Cape Town to the National Parliament as an ANC MP from the legislature? And I said, well, sir, of course I would consider it, um, but I would need to consult with, with my partner, who was at the time gainfully employed in Johannesburg. And he and Tokyo carried on a conversation. And as we were leaving his room, he stopped me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, um, it's a good thing you're open to the idea of moving to Cape Town because you're actually being sworn in in Parliament on Thursday. And I, I was only due back in the country the week after. Um, but this was sort of the way in which things happened in the ANC. One was deployed as the organization thought best. Welcome to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. We are going to get deeper into Andrew's story of how he became a whistleblower in a moment. First, you should know that this podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and is produced by Volume. Throughout the series, we are going to explore what it takes to become a whistleblower and the incredible impact that these brave individuals can have. In this episode, we are looking at the topic of transformation from whistleblower to activist, how speaking out can lead you on a path that changes your whole life forever. Andrew has just been asked, or rather told, by President Nelson Mandela to move to Cape Town to be an ANC Member of Parliament. So, you know, by early 1996, I landed up um, as a member of the National Parliament, um, serving on primarily the Finance Committee. 
And then I also served on the Public Accounts Committee, which was the main financial oversight committee and, and really a key part of this financial accountability chain that we'd put in place as a new democratic government. This prominent role around financial accountability is going to be important later. On the Public Accounts Committee, we landed up having to strongly censure the president's ex-wife, Winnie Mandela, um, who, who was an icon of, of our liberation struggle for spending um, government money while she was a deputy minister in an unauthorized fashion. And to be honest with you, I used to sit behind um, Mrs. Mandela in parliament and I was terrified of her. I suggested to the president that perhaps he would like to tell his ex-wife. And to his credit, he did, which, which sort of got me off the hook. At this point, what he was seeing was fairly minor and infrequent, but things were about to rapidly escalate. A report came to the Public Accounts Committee about a huge arms deal that we eventually established totaled about $10 billion, American dollars, of weapons that was bought by South Africa at the time that Mandela was retiring as Mbeki was taking over the government. And Mbeki really drove this arms deal. And we bought equipment that we really didn't need, huge percentage of which has never been used and which cost all of this money. And the Auditor General, who is like the auditor of all the government departments, who determines um, that all government spending of the previous year has been in accordance with the relevant regulations and legislation, sent us this report saying that there was prima facie evidence of huge corruption in this deal. So we always interrogated the Auditor General's reports. And so we had a series of public hearings about it. And it became clear to us very quickly that, in fact, there had been even more corruption than the Auditor General had managed to pick up in his audit because whistleblowers started coming to see me. The whistleblowers knew to come forward because what Andrew was finding was being reported in the media. And what we found was that about $350 million of bribes had been paid on this deal. And this thing went deep to the head of the military itself, the head of the South African National Defense Force, to various other officials, executives of the state arms company, and of course, a whole lot of intermediaries or arms dealers. Andrew says he knew that this was going to be a defining moment in South Africa's young democracy. And we started investigating, and then the trouble started. Andrew started getting invites to lunches by people he was close to and had admiration for. And in these fancy restaurants, he was told that he must stop the investigation. And then someone else on our National Executive Committee, so the highest body of the ANC, called me to his house one Sunday for lunch and said to me, look, Andrew, I'm very sympathetic of what you're trying to do here, but you can't win. The party will destroy you if you pursue this thing. And I said, but why? And he said, well, because the ANC also got a lot of that bribe money. That's how we fought the 1999 election campaign. We were virtually bankrupt, and the arms deal helped us run a very expensive and very professional campaign. None of this swayed him until... One day in Parliament, I was called to the Speaker's office, and the Speaker, a woman called Freni Jinwala at the time, had been very supportive of the investigation. 
She had called me in in the early stages and said to me, if anyone tries to interfere with your investigation, I will personally resign in protest. This is a test of our democracy and our parliament. And then she calls me in and all of my ANC colleagues from the committee were in there already. And she said, Andrew, we've called a press conference in your name. And here's the statement you're going to be reading. And she had prepared a statement. And basically it said it was an apology to the nation effectively to say that we'd misunderstood, there was no corruption in the deal and there was no need to investigate and we apologize. And all of my colleagues, some of whom I'd known for a long, long time were sort of saying to me, Andrew, you've got to do this. It's not just about your political career, it's about all of our political careers. You are a comrade of our movement and you have to do this. We're telling you to do this. And I was weak and I went and gave this press conference and the media, completely astonished because I'd been working with most of them, telling them what we were uncovering and stuff. So they were completely confused. And I then jumped in my car immediately afterwards. And I was, I had to drive across Cape Town to one of its southern suburbs for a workshop that the Public Accounts Committee was supposed to be having there. And as I was driving across, um, across town, I heard myself reading my statement on the car radio and I just burst into tears. It was at this moment that Andrew realized that he couldn't do this. He couldn't cover up the corruption. So he called a second press conference and he told the bewildered media there that he had made a big mistake and that the investigation would continue. And then the ANC started formally disciplining me. The chief whip who was actually implicated in corruption in the arms deal removed me from that committee. And they just rode roughshod over this investigation and try to close the whole thing down. The president went so far as to make an address on public television in which he effectively accused me and the committee of insurrection, of trying to undermine the government with false information. But Andrew kept going. I continued the investigation as best I could, got all of the information that I could lay my hands on as a member of parliament. But during this time, the emotional strain was immense. I would walk into parliament, which had been such a pleasurable experience for me. And unfortunately, my seat was right in the middle of the chamber. So I'd have to walk through half the ANC benches to get to my seat. And often as I walked to my seat, people who I regarded as colleagues, as comrades, would start saying first quite quietly and then more and more loudly, traitor, traitor. And then the night before they were going to um, force me out of parliament, I resigned stating exactly what had gone on and how the ANC was trying to prevent an investigation of this huge corruption scandal that ran to the core and the highest echelons of government. So it was tough. But from Andrew's side, there are absolutely no regrets. To this day, I remain so grateful to whatever it is that made me do what I did because I could never have looked my children in the eye. I could never have looked at myself in a mirror had I covered up as they wanted me to.
this has done for Andrew is that it has opened up a whole new life as an activist. Just confirmed my principles, and they're the principles that determined why I joined the ANC. They're the principles that determined why I went into Parliament, and the principles that I had in mind when I gave an oath of allegiance, not to the ANC, not to Parliament, but to South Africa's constitution. And unfortunately, what I felt, which you know, might be a bit overstating it, but I sort of felt that my principles had remained the same and the principles of my party, my organization had changed. But yes, I mean, what it did was it inadvertently set me on a path that I, even at the time, I would never have imagined I would have followed. So I decided, I I knew by the time that I resigned, I knew that I was going to write a book about the arms deal and about my experience. His book is called After the Party, Corruption, the ANC and South Africa's Uncertain Future. And make the point, which is a very important point, that it wasn't that, you know, South Africa was so terrible and that South Africa was so corrupt. The real tragedy of the democratic South Africa is how quickly and easily we adopted the incredibly tawdry norms of the whole world. The next step changed his life. And the extraordinary thing I discovered was that very few people wrote about the arms trade and about corruption in the arms trade globally. And so as a consequence of that first book, people approached me from all over the world. I mean, people in the UK who were working against arms trade issues in the UK. I mean, I I was approached by people from... American intelligence. I should say here that Andrew has a policy that he flat out does not work with intelligence agencies. He tells them to rather buy his books. So this network developed globally, you know, and I could never say that I established this network. I mean, these people all came to me and I started to feel a sort of a responsibility to utilize this network. And when I discovered after publishing the first book, that there hadn't been a book published on the global arms trade since 1977. There had been a brilliant book by a chap called Anthony Sampson called The Arms Bazaar um, that I'd obviously read while I was still in Parliament going through all of this. I set out to effectively write another version of Anthony Sampson's book But whereas Anthony Sampson had about half a dozen references in his 1977 book, The Shadow World, which was my second book, Inside the Global Arms Trade, had almost 3,000 references. Because what I discovered was that the reason no one wrote about the global arms trade was because it is all taking place behind a veil of national security imposed secrecy. It's really, really difficult to get the information. And I managed to work with prosecutors and then with whistleblowers from across the world to get information, to be able to source that information, to verify it. And that's the basis on which I managed to publish The Shadow World with a huge global publisher like Penguin and then get a a feature documentary made by brilliant producers in the United States, a director in Belgium um, that has won film awards all over the world. What's important is that Andrew feels fortunate for how his life has turned out. I suppose in a bizarre way, I feel very lucky 
to have been able to devote my life since leaving Parliament. Not leaving politics, because I often feel more engaged in politics since I left Parliament than when I was in Parliament. But I feel very fortunate to have been able to spend my working life and to actually be remunerated, albeit not lavishly, um, to do this work. Because I, I, I do think that it's very important and speaks to the nature of the problems with our democracies in the world where we are lucky enough to live in democracies. Through his work with other whistleblowers, Andrew has been humbled. All of the whistleblowers and sources that I've worked with over the years since then, and I've worked literally with hundreds of often remarkable, courageous people of integrity who, you know, in their company, to even call me a whistleblower, I find inappropriate. I was doing my job. I was a member of parliament. Um, these people are really risking their lives, especially national security whistleblowers. And, you know, we know the famous ones like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. But let me tell you, there are hundreds of people whose names we've never heard of who take as much risk as the Chelsea's and the Edwards. And, and, and these are the people who I have such enormous respect for. But every one of them who I've worked with over the years, they've said to me, oh, my gosh, if only I'd known X or Y before I started. And I think the important things that I would have liked to know as well. First of all, I would have liked to know then the sort of investigative skills that I have now. Um, and, and my very small organization, Shadow World Investigations, we run investigative methods, training courses to try and spread as widely as possible the sort of investigative techniques that we've developed over the years, which are actually very easy for, for anybody to use. Um, so I wish I had that. I wish, I wish that I'd been a little bit more prepared for the sort of the personal onslaught. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough when you're living and you know that your house, your car, your office are all bugged, um, that you're being accused by the president of a country of, of lying, of trying to undermine um, the country and the constitution. Until you're actually in that situation, you don't know how tough it's going to be. And I think one of the amazing things that PLAF does, and I've done this on behalf of PLAF with whistleblowers, is it just provides you with that sort of information and support. So at a time when you feel you question yourself personally, and, you know, because most whistleblowers and sources do have perhaps an overdeveloped sense of self-reflection um, and self-criticism, which is what gets them into that situation in, in the first in the first place, um, you do continue to question yourself all the time. And I think just to have a support network around you when you are questioning yourself is crucially important. PLAF has been a huge success story, expanding so quickly, but the organization's director, Henri Toulise, who is a lawyer registered at the Paris Bar, never thought it would grow so fast. When William Bourdon uh, approached me uh, in 2016-2017 with this idea of creating an NGO to protect whistleblowers in Africa, I thought it was a crazy idea. When you think about uh, whistleblowers in, in the United States or in Europe and you realize uh, all the obstacles that they have to face and, and all the danger they take and all the risks they take and how their life uh, 
can 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 become a very complicated and dangerous story. I really thought that creating such an organization for Africa in general uh, was kind of very optimistic and and maybe a little bit naive um, because I thought that you know you you will never have people who will take so much risk uh, in countries that are particularly dangerous and where, where the rule of law is an illusion. Um, so I, I said to William, okay, I, I'm, I'm inclined to try, uh, but I think we shouldn't get our hope uh, too high. And William was like, you know, there's so much uh, corruption, so much kleptocracy, so much violations of the public interest that for sure there will be many people who will want to speak out. And very quickly, I realized that it was true, and I was the one who was I was the one who was naive. So they began to help whistleblowers in South Africa and in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, obviously, each country has its own uh, history and its own um, aspects and culture. So the reason why someone will decide to blow the whistle can depend on the on, on his or her environment and uh, and, and and history. Um, I think that. Um, on the one hand, in, in general, I would say that uh, what push people to speak out is the fact that they get tired of uh, not seeing their countries getting developed, although they have uh, the, the, the best natural resources in the world. Um, and also, I think that they are tired of not having any proper tool, proper state and uh, administration to fight corruption, to fight kleptocracy, and where they can easily uh, blow the whistle. Henri says that when it comes to South Africa, we have a history of fighting against the system. You have this very important spirit where uh, civil society people, citizens, decided to take back uh, their own power to control their country, for democracy to be the, the, the project of uh, one nation. And I think that in the past years in South Africa, uh, some people... And many people felt that their democracy, the Mandela, Mandela's heritage, had been uh, taken over, had been stolen by a certain group of people. And it was very important to speak out so that, again, the, the, the state of South Africa could be beneficial for the majority of, of its citizens. And the DRC is a unique case. The DRC is the, the richest country in the world in terms of natural resources, yet it's one of the countries where the, the people are the, uh, is a poor. And we will all need DRC in the future if you want to make sure there is a, a proper um, an, uh, transition in terms of the use of the energy. Uh, the, the DRC is full of, uh, uh, of cobalt, the, the mineral that you need for any uh, electronic batteries. So it's very important to focus on, on, on this big country because the future of our humanity depends on the minerals in this country. And what we realized is that, you know, there was a, a group of people in power who felt that they could do whatever they wanted with the public resources and, and the national treasury in one word. And actually, one of the first whistleblowers who approached PLAF is Jean-Jacques Lubumba, someone who used to work in a bank in Kinshasa. Jean-Jacques is something of a hero. He was tired of being witness to public money being stolen, of money being laundered, and bank accounts being opened on behalf of entities sanctioned by the U.S. for financing terrorism. Here he is in person. I'm a former banker at the Republic Democratic of, uh, of Congo. I work uh, for four years in uh, BGFI, 
uh, as a head of uh, credit department, credit risk department. I discover many operations uh, uh, against uh, illicit operation concerning a society uh, linked uh, to Kabila family. Here is Henri again on what happened to Jean-Jacques next. And he went to see the director of the, of the bank, who was himself the brother of uh, the head of state, Joseph Kabila, to express his, uh, uh, his exhaustion and the fact that he didn't want to cover these kind of uh, activities. And instead of you know the bank um, acknowledging these uh, these issues, the bank decided to threaten him. He was then forced to live abroad with his family. But once he arrived uh, in Europe, he decided to blow the whistle properly externally and make all the information available for the for the press. Here is Jean Jacques again. Today I can say I'm happy for my for, for my story because in October. Uh, 2016, uh, the, 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 the press, Le in Belgium, uh, revealed uh, my, my declaration and uh, my, my document. I'm a whistleblower because I, 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 I revealed the, the, the illicit operation concerning the uh, Kabila family, but I'm activist because today I do more for to to, to speak uh, against uh, against corruption uh, in in my country and in in the Africa uh, Africa continent because uh, I can say I'm uh, activist and uh, and whistleblower. Here is Henri again on the consequences of the whistleblowing. And it created a major wave in the DRC because for the first time you had someone from the inside, a proper insider who decided to show the evidence he had about how the public money was being diverted. And I think it's something amazingly brave to do. Uh, he could have been killed, his family could have been killed, and he decided to, to leave his country, to leave his, his little comfort that he had, his job, you know, to try to make a change in his country. And Jean-Jacques talks incredibly fondly of working with PLAF. When I say PLAF, I saw directly Henri Tullier and uh, and uh, William William Bourdon, who is also my uh, Henri is also my, my lawyer uh, because uh, uh, Plath is also created for to 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 defend the whistleblower like me and uh, to to help us to 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 bring our our file and our. Our, our conflict uh, against uh, our former employer in justice, but uh, since creation of uh, of PLAF, but uh, PLAF helped me in uh, uh, concerning, for example, justice, uh, uh, justice concerning communication, uh, concerning uh, my my relation uh, with media, for example, but. Uh, uh, Plath is a uh, is good is good structure for 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 defending uh, defending activists and uh, whistleblowers in in Africa. Here is Henri on the amazing knock-on effect of Jean Jacques coming forward. And you know, since Jean Jacques Lubumba did that, many whistleblowers from the DRC uh, came to 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 meet us at Plath. 
to see what they could do themselves to blow the whistle. So it's it's a bit like in South Africa where people get get so tired of the situation that they all want to speak out and make a change. And they felt that there's nothing they can expect from the political side. They have to do it themselves by doing little but very radical uh, actions to try to push for a change. Jean-Jacques says that you have to be willing to sacrifice your whole life when becoming a whistleblower. To become a, a whistleblower is a, a big sacrifice for, for, for the life, uh, first of all. But uh, this sacrifice, a common reason, is, is for, for the opportunity of, of all community. It's not for, for, for Jean-Jacques, it's not for, for me, it's for Congolese community uh, or African community because corruption uh, doesn't concern also uh, Congo. Uh, corruption is uh, a reality of all all country and and for all 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 uh, country in in in, uh, in African continent. But is 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 also reality uh, in in France or Belgium. And he can't avoid the fact that his life has changed. The security, for example, change. Uh, the safety change. Uh, I can say uh, the state of mind change, uh, uh, the life in my family and uh, and other relations change because I cannot uh, see uh, you you cannot uh, be a servant uh, uh, for other person is more difficult for for you to to become a, a whistleblower because. Uh, I can say my life, uh, my life was 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 changed uh, after this uh, this uh, this uh, this period, but because uh, uh, the the risk is more in my life because uh, uh, I have more enemies today. I can I can say because uh, uh, Kabila family uh, is my first. Uh, uh, didn't like who doesn't like uh, to to see Janjak in life for for example not only Kabila family all person who implicated in in the corruption in DRC did doesn't like to don't like to to see me but for me it's just a step in in the life to be whistleblower in Africa is is very very dangerous because uh, uh, democracy is, is not uh, the same reality in Africa and uh, and in Europe. Here is Andri again giving information on how PLAF connects with whistleblowers. It's a question of trust and and building bridges uh, with these people. Is making them feel that uh, in us there is a community of experts. We are ready to help them uh, legally, but also sometimes psychologically, sometimes physically, if they are really much in danger. Uh, sometimes we could also try to help them to, to find a job, for example. But the, what they are looking for is actually to be taken seriously uh, by, by people who want to take the time and, and, and devote their energy uh, to help them. Some of these whistleblowers found themselves to be very lonely, to be really like uh, solitary. And they were looking for a group of people to, to help them, to make them feel that there was a little shield to protect them, to protect them from 
from their uh, employers, from the authorities, from uh, bad people, but also sometimes from the from the press when journalists are very eager to get to get sensitive information. What they need is someone who can always be in touch with them and reassure them. They know what they are doing. They are the ones taking the decision. They just want a, a little bit of assistance to 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 disclose information and to be protected uh, afterwards in the long run. But they don't come with, um, how can I say, uh, strong high hopes or things that uh, we could do for them. We don't, pro- we don't give them money. We do not offer medical assistance, for example. We, we, we just help them legally to do what they want to do. And, and sometimes we can help them to, to get a little bit more. Yes, that, that's it. I think it's mainly a question of trust, time and energy. There is a range of different options available to a whistleblower. Some of them want to make it public. Some want this information to be sent to the hierarchy to try to make a change within their administration or within their company. And some of them want the information to be disclosed publicly. So what we do is that we assess the, the risk for these whistleblowers, the risk being pre and post-disclosure. We assess the risk, the legal risk, the physical risk, uh, and evaluate what the best uh, strategy would be uh, for them. And when they want to make it public, which is not always the case, uh, we want to give them the opportunity to get the best impact as possible. Because in general, the aim of the whistleblower is to make a change, is to try to, to stop an illegal activity to take place, for example. If the whistleblower desires to, to remain anonymous, we will take the, the data with us and take full responsibility for any like defamation or libel suit. We will share that information with journalists with whom we will have non-disclosure agreements. And, you know, we will work on the publication time with the journalist. We can assist the journalist in the investigation. All of that to ensure that, the best, uh, that there is the best impact possible. And what we always make very clear with a whistleblower is that it's his own or her own decision. If one minute before pushing the send button on our computer, he decides not, he or she decides not to do it, we will not do it. And the time we have spent working with them and, and making them feel confident would be wasted time, but that's, uh, that's life. And according to Plav, there are ways to spot if a whistleblower has ulterior motives for coming forward. Sometimes it's uh, someone who will come to you and, and tell you a story with a very weak documents uh, to ground the story. And when you, you know, explain the fact that blowing the whistle with just few with only these few documents can lead to more reprisals than anything else against this potential whistleblower. It often helps to see whether this person has actually much stronger information uh, or not. Sometimes it will be people who come because they, they had a personal issue within their, within their job. Sometimes it's fine. It, it, you know, it can be just an incentive to do something you wanted to do before. But sometimes it's not, and, and, and sometimes you, you, you have to assess what really is pushing the whistleblower to do what, uh, what he's or, or she's doing. It can be the same when, when the whistleblowers are political opponents, for example. Are they doing it because they, they want to act in good faith and they're doing it because they want to make a change, or are they doing it to serve a political interest? We have to assess all of these. Finally, Henri talks about the legal costs and business model of PLAF. The legal cost, it, it depends. If you talk about South Africa, the legal cost will be very high. If you talk about France or Francophone countries, it will be quite quite cheaper. Uh, uh, not only because someone like me or William are, are lawyers and can do this work pro bono, 
uh, even in in courts uh, in francophone in francophone Africa. Um, we uh, we try to uh, each time we help one whistleblower, we try to assess what will what will be the the legal cost and try to raise the funds before going ahead uh, to be able to cover the, the the legal fees. And you know, you also have more and more lawyers who are also happy to work on these cases uh, pro bono because they also want to make a change and they want to kind of uh, uh, help uh, those who do what matters the most for our societies, which is um, the fight for a common good. You've been listening to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. This podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa and is produced by volume. For more information, please visit plaf.org. Join us next time when we will explore the emotional strain put in people who become whistleblowers. What does it truly cost you? Well, we'll find out next time on The Witness. Goodbye. Volume.